Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I am okay. Uh, unlike Sophie, Sophie's very sick. That's why she isn't here today. So it's just me and our guest, Jonathan Ouellet. Good Welcome. morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, second time around. Unfortunately, <laughs> yesterday we recorded this whole thing and it didn't... Uh, I, I still don't know what happened. We didn't have audio, so... Um, we're we're gonna do it again, which is good for you because you only get the filtered content, the very good, to the point. We've practiced this we, now. Yes, we're we're professionals. I would say at this point, <laughs> or is that an overstatement? Uh, I think we can call ourselves professionals, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. why not? Yeah, cool. Um, well, uh, we start out with the rapid fire questions. I'm ready. You're ready? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, camping or hotels? So I got to go camping. Uh, I camped a lot as a kid. Um, like every summer we'd go to one of the big national parks in, in Canada and camp for a week or so, uh, my father and I. And then I've also had the chance to do like winter camping in minus 40, which is miserable. And then desert camping. I've done that in China, Qatar, uh, along the Pakistani border in a yurt. It's just, I love camping. Yeah, I can imagine. Minus 40, is that Celsius or Fahrenheit? The system everybody but the Americans uses. Yeah, that's Celsius. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can yeah. never remember that, for the love of me. <laughs> All right, that's good, because minus 40 Fahrenheit is cold. Yeah. Minus 40 Celsius is cold it, as well. It's it's but, bitter. It's yeah. bitter. Yeah, how did, how did you even end up camping? I think every person in their right mind would be like, minus 40, maybe I'll stay well, home for the weekend. <laughs> To be fair, where I'm from in Canada, Ottawa is the second coldest capital city in the world. So for us from basically December till about March, minus 30, minus 40 is not that uncommon. We'll wow. get that a couple days a year at least. Um, so when I was in high school, we had an outdoor education course. And one of the options was uh, camping. For We did that for a couple days. And then also during my time in the military, I mean, we'd go out in the field, which was basically camping but with rifles <laughs> yeah and exercises yeah yeah um beaches or forests i would go beaches um i love to swim i mean i have my scuba divers license uh but i seem to keep choosing locations to live that are far from the ocean i don't know how i keep doing this but <laughs> it happened but i i love to swim so definitely beaches yeah what's your favorite scuba diving location Ooh. um because I was kind of living far from the ocean for quite a while there, I didn't get to scuba dive as much as, as I maybe wanted. But Zanzibar, definitely the top that I've been to. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've scuba dived a fair share in my time as well. And I don't know, I would advise to everyone, like, at the beginning, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. You're underwater and you're breathing. Yeah, it's it's. I think that that messes with your breath as well because you're like, I'm excited right now. Oh, yeah, don't be excited because then that's going to screw with your breath. Yeah. My brother still keeps, I think when we did this last, I was maybe 13. Yeah. What, together with my brother, at least. And he's still making fun of me for, for running through my tank in like <laughs> 20 minutes. At I don't know. It wasn't that deep, like 12 meters or something. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I don't know. It, it It's like you're exactly what you're saying. You're there under the water and you're like, Oh, this is cool. Don't get excited. And then there's one fish or one thing that happens here. Like, <laughs> yeah, exciting. <laughs> I love it. All right. What's your favorite food? Food. So I can't necessarily pick a particular dish, but I'd have to either go uh, Central Asian cuisine or uh, Georgian cuisine. 
Uh, both of them have like some awesome dumplings uh, with the Central Asians. Uh, we call manti or manta, depending on which language you're using. Uh, with the Georgian cuisine, it's just phenomenal. Uh, there's a couple of restaurants in the Netherlands, including one in Den Haag that I've been to. But you get some good khachapuri or khinkali, oh, it's going to be a good meal. Yeah. What makes it so good? I think it's just the taste. There's something about it. Even I've tried recreating it. And I'd even ask like, my Georgian friends, like, hey, why did this not turn out the way it was supposed to? And they're like, you're not an 80-year-old Georgian grandma that's been doing this her entire life. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fair, okay. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it is it like spicy food? No, uh, the Central Asian stuff's not too spicy. It will have some spice, but not a lot. Okay, all right. Yeah, because I I suck at spicy food. I, uh, same which, here. Yeah. Despite all my travels, spicy I just can't handle. No, oh man, I remember once I was in London, and what do you get in London? Yeah, Curry. You get the yeah the curries. And oh, no, it was not okay. The day after we were flying to New Zealand, well, oh, that was a fun a trip. trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was living in China, uh, the first couple times I, I went to hot pot with my local colleagues, I think my face turned every color of the rainbow. <laughs> it's just like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> yeah, because um, you you mentioned China quite a lot. You worked there. Yeah, what I worked there for four years. Cool. What did you do? So I was an English teacher. Uh, if you've ever heard of the company EF or English English First or uh, Education First. Uh, so I taught mostly three to six year olds English for four years. Cool. As a, do you also speak Chinese? Or? A little. Uh, I'm not fluent. I could probably pass a B1 test okay. if I was really. Oh, that's my... already pretty good. It's okay. Uh, I mean, I can survive, but I'm by no means fluent. And were you before you went there already? Nope. I went with zero knowledge. Okay, so you were teaching English in English to the Chinese yes. kids. because uh, that's basically what the parents pay for. They pay for a foreigner to come in and their student. Or their kid has to speak English, or else they they don't learn. That's cool. That's cool. Was that a thing you always wanted to do? Not necessarily always wanted to do. It just kind of when I finished my master's degree, I needed a job. I needed to start paying off some student loans, and it seemed like a logical kind of tactical decision. And then I turned out to be quite good at it. Yeah. <laughs> so it worked out very well, I'd say. And you can live in China. I think living in China is like a, a thing most people are very interested in, how it is. Yeah, I mean, I knew a number of people who, I was there for four years, but I mean, my manager had been there for eight. I knew a number of people who had been there, you know, 10, 15 years and have basically lived lived almost their entire lives there just teaching and working. Yeah, yeah. It's so different from what, what we know, I guess. Uh, it's a completely different world. And depending as well where you are in China, because I was in Xinjiang, which is the west of the country which is com a completely different world from like Shanghai or Beijing or kind of the east of the country. Okay, in, in what way? Uh, culturally, it's different. Uh, that's the uh, part of the Islamic area of China. So you have the Uyghurs, the Hazaks, Uzbeks, uh, Huizhou, uh, just the various ethnic groups that actually make up more of the population than the Han. So they are culturally different. They speak a different language. Uh, the food is different because of that because you get that Central Asian cuisine. The environment's different because you get quite a bit of snow in the winter and it does get quite cold. And just, yeah, it's just, it's it's hard to kind of summarize in, in like a couple words, but yeah, it's just a different place. Yeah, yeah. My word just closed. That's only the word. That's, well, I guess we'll do it without questions then. Oh no, there we go. My laptop is not really... I think this is a cursed episode. I think this is the episode that should not have happened. 
We can call it the cursed episode. <laughs> the cursed episode. Welcome to the cursed episode. The one that was postponed four times yeah. and redid it, redone one time. <laughs> the questions closed, the audio didn't record. Um, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Um, all right. China is one time zone, right? Yeah, it gets very confusing because it's uh, Beijing Standard Time. But Arumchi's, I think, technically three hours behind Beijing if you look at it on a map. So we would w start work at, say, 10 a.m., but it's technically 7 a.m., so it will still be dark, uh, which in the winter gets weird because it means you basically never see the, the sun. Wow. Um, and even there's Beijing Standard Time, and then the locals, especially the Uyghurs, do have, like, a, a local time. So occasionally if you ask, say, a taxi driver, be here at 9 a.m., they will think that actually means 11 a.m. because their their time is different than yes. Yeah, so you do have to occasionally specify Beijing Standard Time. Wow, that's very confusing. Extremely. Yeah. Is it? Wow. I but it also means that then in the summer, sometimes the sun doesn't go down to like 10 p.m. or something. Yeah. Because technically, it's like 7 or 8 p.m. So it's it's quite strange. Yeah. Yeah. So you would go to bed with the full sun out. Yeah. Basically. Wow. Man, for a Dutch person, that's very hard to grasp that there would be different time zones and that people are not on time. Yeah, I've discovered that since moving to the Netherlands, that Dutch concepts of like time and space are very different. For, I mean, I'm from a place where five hours gets you to the nearest town. I mean, nine. it takes 19 hours to go from one end of my province to the other. Jeez. Here, 19 hours is what, Istanbul? Yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah, almost 2,000 kilometers, yeah. 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 So, I mean, just conceptually, it's quite strange to me. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. it's And the other way around, to me, it's also wild that people would do road trips for nine hours and be like, oh, that's a short road trip. That's a day trip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a holiday for us, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> south of France. Yeah. Well, nine hours, yeah, nine hours would get you to... Oh, yeah. No, halfway through. I think Bordeaux is like 12. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, books or movies? I'd go books. Uh, I started reading at a relatively young age, and I'd you know, go to Chapters, which is a Canadian book chain, and drop $100. Then go back the next weekend, drop another $100. And my parents at a certain point were just like, wait, how is he doing this? Like, this is not adding up. Because <laughs> uh, now I, just, I love reading, and I love being able to kind of picture the event in my mind like what my mind can create of what i think the scene will look like yeah yeah i can imagine i think that's what most people really like about yeah. reading yeah it's the creative freedom you get um do you have a favorite movie i'd probably go lord of the rings uh it, it, it would be a toss-up between lord of the rings or star wars it's got to be one of those two i think all right um because again that, that that's also just something i started watching when i was very young and got hooked yeah it's nostalgic yeah how often have you seen the movies Ooh. could you count that on one hand i don't think i could because <laughs> i feel like it is a yearly thing at this point of just picking a weekend where i'm relaxing and just watch the whole series kind of thing yeah i've definitely done that multiple times <laughs> cool and the video games have you played them video games not as much um i'm not as big a video game person as i used to be just because moving around and stuff like that, I was relying on a laptop and just not the same. Mm -hmm. I, I can relate, yeah. yeah. I can imagine. Um, do you have any pets? 
I don't. Um, again, kind of having to do with the the moving around so much, it's a little bit inconvenient. Yeah. And I mean, with things like field work where I'm potentially away for two months, then I'd have to find a place. I'm, I'm more of a dog person. Uh, if, I, if I was in like a stable place and I didn't have to travel so much, I probably would be owning a dog. Cool. Yeah, me too. I love dogs. What do you think about cats, though? They're okay. Oh, that's a very careful Just, answer. <laughs> they're okay. I mean, I'm probably going to lose some followers on this one, but yeah, oh, well. we'll go with that. They're okay. They're okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. For me, I can't deal with cats at all. <laughs> like, but that's that's me saying that. <laughs> um, you're research assistant at the at the faculty, right? Yeah. So my, I think my official title on paper is research assistant, but uh, I'm a PhD here under uh, Professor Yoni Dofram, and then uh, I also am the BA one TA. Uh, so right now I'm doing Landscape Dynamics two, uh, which is a really good course, uh, and then I've also done World Archaeology and then Material Studies. As, as a TA. How how did you end up in archaeology in the first place? Uh, I'm, I'm one of those comical souls that, you know, when they were young, they saw Indiana Jones and kind of the rest is history. Uh, basically, when I was young, parents took me to, like, Disney World Epcot, and they had the Indiana Jones stunt show. I hadn't seen the movies at that point, so I was just like, yeah, let's watch this. Sure, why not? And then after it's like, can we watch the movies when we get home? And my parents are like, sure, why not? And they learned their lesson because uh-huh. <laughs> that then kind of charted the course. I still joke with them from time to time. <laughs> if we wouldn't have gone to see that stunt show, I could have ended up as a lawyer or a mechanic or a plumber. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, is that what you would have done? <sighs> I have no idea you what I would have ended up in. Because I kind of I moved away from the archaeology at a certain point and then kind of circled back to it once I hit university and... I went, hey, this is a thing that I can do now. Cool. Yeah. And you're you're here today. So. Yeah. So, it, you know, it worked out. <laughs> cool. Um, and uh, what does your PhD focus on? So I'm looking at the site of uh, Otrar in Kazakhstan. Uh, I'm looking at kind of the, what I guess we would call early medieval slash early Islamic slash late antique, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's part of the debate itself. And I'm trying to understand how a site like that, which is very much on what we would call the peripheries or kind of the frontiers of the known world or kind of the the established empires, how does it fit into this bigger picture? Because uh, at that point you have the, uh, the Umayyad and the Abbasid Caliphate, you have the Tang Dynasty, the Tibetan Empire, uh, you have various Turkic and Sogdian groups at play. There's, I think I have a chart on one of my chapters, and I think there's about tw- 10 or 12 different groups that are at play here. Um, all, it seems like, vying for this region. So that's, I'm, I'm trying to look at this from a material culture. How does this show up in the record, and what does this mean? And the material culture is everything, or do you have a specific I'm mostly focus? focusing on the coins with a little bit of a ceramics uh, as well, because uh, my main specialty is coins. How did you get into that? So I kind of started collecting a little bit when I was younger. Like just, you know, the, in Canada, you pick up American coins and just random stuff from time to time. And then when I was in university, when I started doing seminars where there's, you know, 10 of us in a room and we're all debating these things, I realized that certain people had certain kind of specialties. And I also realized that coin coins and numismatics are a very small subfield. I mean... When you go to a conference and there's 20 people, that's a sold-out room. So I realized that if I can get really good with this, 
it's a good niche that can then make me employable and useful later. And then it started to become a joke of, oh, this is Jonathan, he's the coin guy. Cool. And the rest is history. And the rest is history, yeah. Wow, okay. Are you, what, what makes coins so much fun then? It, it's hard to kind of summarize in, in like one one phrase or one sentence. Well, it can be more than that. I, uh, uh, all right, let's go. Five-page paper. Five-page paper. I'm listening. <laughs> um, I'm down for it. <laughs> I think there's just something about them. I mean, there's so much detail that can fit into such a small thing. Like I've got a couple ancient ones in front of me from my own private collection. And, I mean, you look at, like, say, the Sasanian one, and, you know, you look at the way, say, his his crown is and the way his hair is done and the difference between say Sasanian coins for example can be sometimes the hair is in a bun sometimes it's just flowing sometimes they've got wings at the crown sometimes they don't sometimes those wings have like four kind of feathers sometimes they only have two those little details change so much of the data yeah and I mean even when you look at say like coin auctions and stuff like that some of these coins that we only maybe have one or two known copies. Uh, there's one up for auction right now, actually, which I believe is selling for like $47,000 because there's four known copies of it. Wow. Two are in the British Museum, one is in Berlin, and then this one. And it's just like, holy jumping. Wow. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of value to something, you know, so small. Yeah, yeah, because what we have in front of us is four coins. Yeah. The the one you just explained is well, what would it be? Fifty millimeters across. This one's I believe what thirty two. Oh, thirty two. Yeah, thirty two. Okay. So it's medium sized. Yeah, and uh, it's silver. I'm silver. assuming. Yes. The, yeah, this one's silver. Yeah. And what what is it? What does it depict for the people at home? So you've got a uh, a very stereotypical Sasanian drachma. Uh, it's got the Shah or the king on one side. And on the other side is a fire temple with two priests or attendants. Of course, the Sasanian Empire being Zoroastrian. Uh, and we actually see this sort of style last for probably about 200, 300 years after the Islamic invasions. So after the Sasanian dynasty falls, this style permeates for probably a good 200, 300 years yeah, in variations. Yeah, very cool. What would that mean? Well, I mean... When we think of coins, we think of, say, like a one euro coin. It's worth one euro. Why is it worth one euro? Because that's the deal we made? Because basically that's the value we've assessed to it. Um, no different. Canada got rid of their penny a number of years ago because they realized the metal that was being made was worth more than one cent. So it didn't make sense anymore. Ancient coinage is based very much on weight and materials. So, for example, Sasanian coins, very nice silver uh, you know, sometimes up to 98 99% fine, which is, you know, remarkable even by today's standards. Yeah. And you'd weigh it, assuming it weighs kind of the value that you've attest to, I don't know, the, the coffee. The coffee's worth know, two grams of silver. You'd weigh this. Yep, this is two grams. You know, here's your coffee. Here's your silver. Uh, and it's the same thing with gold and other materials. Yeah, so it's more about the weight yeah it's more about the weight and knowing the the quality of the the silver so yeah. for example sasanian silver is worldwide at a certain point it is the the go-to silver coinage from byzantium all the way to japan wow and the stamping on it then because it's very elaborate and pretty i can would say that there was a lot of effort put in 
Yeah, I mean, that. even the process it's itself, you basically have a large sheet of silver. You'd stamp, you know, all your coins in, and then you'd get, like, a pair of metal scissors, and you actually cut it. That's why if you look closely, you actually do see some areas where it's a little more kind of um, flat, where obviously the scissor has cut. And it's basically how that was one of the methods for minting coins at that point. Wow. So does that mean that the weight of the silver does not directly translate to the value of the coin because there's also the manual labor behind it and it's it's all about the uh the value of the silver wow so the the decoration is pure decorative decorative yeah you, you could you could say that wow is that something you see with every coin not necessarily every coin i mean in the modern world we obviously have uh Obviously, you start to get these kind of concepts of this coin is worth X amount. Like if you look at the Chinese coinage, they start to basically have this concept of this is worth kind of one yuan type of logic. Um, in those days, I mean, fake fakes were made or imitations were made because also you, like you knew if you saw this design, this was good silver or say the Byzantine gold. You knew if you saw that Byzantine design, that was good gold. Uh, into the Islamic era, we start getting these coins and the Byzantine ones just stamped with the Arabic word Jaid, which is good in Arabic. So basically, you knew that was good coinage because it says good. Uh, you have four coins here, which are all beautiful in their own right. And the Chinese one you just picked up is is 20 mil across? Uh, like yeah, about that. And with a, with a square hole in the yeah. middle? Was that also decorative purpose? So the weight... Uh, coinage was used in China and large parts of Asia was you'd put it on a string and they had a concept of uh, your value was based on strings of cash so a camel would be worth I don't know 50 strings of cash uh, a bolt of silk would be worth I don't know 10 strings of cash that sort of thing and we do have records from various dynasties that kind of state even rules about you can only own X amount of strings of cash uh, I guess you could consider it similar to like taxes now. So yeah, you'd put it in a string of say a hundred, a hundred one of these cash coins, and then you'd pay by string. So you see different uses of cash all around the world. Is that did that evolve separately, or is it all inspired on one another? I think it's separately, but at the same time, uh, humans are shockingly simple creatures at times. Um, I think you go to any part of the world and at the end of the day, we all want more or less the same thing. So a merchant in Tenochtitlan and a merchant in Chang'an and a merchant in Antwerp all want the same thing. Now, how they get across that idea, whether that's through you know cash coins like this, whether that's through uh, silver or gold uh, guilders, whether that's through uh, cocoa beans or uh, copper bells, that concept is the same. What we see at various points, though, is certain forms become more predominant. This is why, uh, you know, you get, say, the silver trade dollars that get very popular, uh, the Maria Teresa uh, Taylor coins, uh, the Spanish silver dollars become popular worldwide. Uh, again, at a certain point, it was, you know, the Sasanian uh, and Byzantine gold and silver Roman coinage for for a while there, you know, if you had Roman coins, you were good to go. And even just this concept of, well, on one side is going to be the face and the other side is going to be some sort of design. 
that gains popularity over time. And it's something we still see today. Yes, I mean, it's permeated now completely into basically every country. Yeah, and what you were saying earlier, for example, cocoa beans as an exchange, would you, in in theory, it does the same as a coin, but would you describe that as a coin as well in some way? I wouldn't call it a coin. I mean, we have various ways of exchange. I mean, you could pay me for being on this podcast by giving me coffee. Yeah. I would not call coffee a coin. No. But we do agree that it is a form of exchange. Um, coins, I think, hold a value because you're not exchanging so much the coin itself, but the value that that coin holds. So you're not accepting this coin because you like coins or because I've said I'm going to pay one coin. I've agreed that I'm going to pay one silver coin as payment for this coffee. Yeah. It's no different. I mean, the paper notes that we use now, it is an intrinsic value of this represents five euros because someone in a bank somewhere has decided five euros is, is the value of this. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Um, do you have a favorite coin? It's got to be the Sasanian ones because that's, A, it's what I did my master's on. Um, and it became the thing I started really kind of collecting in seriousness. Uh, and that was also something where I think you could fit the Sasanian coin experts in the world in this room. There's like 10 active people. It's kind of shocking at times. Wow. Um, do you think a lot of knowledge about it goes wasted because there's so little people in it? I, I think there is. Um, our field has kind of a strange problem where there's definitely an age gap. You have people who have been doing it a very, very long time. And then you have kind of new people coming up, but there's like a 20, 30 year gap there. Uh, even when I go to conferences or coin shows, I'm usually one of the younger ones there by a significant amount. And I think it's also, it's kind of hoarded. The knowledge is hoarded sometimes. So you'll get experts in various countries where they don't want to share their knowledge. So then it kind of just dies with them, Yeah, quite frank. Why, why wouldn't they want to share knowledge? I don't, I don't really, it seems very counterproductive to me, but I think just some people, they got that position by having that knowledge and they want to keep that position. Ah, okay. So it's, it's a little bit of a knowledge is power, guard it well type of logic. Yeah, okay. In one way that makes sense. Maybe it's quite naive for us to like open access or resources and stuff. But do you think, do you think knowledge is better when it's, kept secret or do you think I, I don't think it is especially this kind of knowledge I mean numismatics is also a funny field because you have a lot of people in the field who are not academics by trade like they're lawyers they're engineers they're postal workers who just they've been collecting since they were teens and now they're in their 70s and they've amassed these massive collections you know every time they'd go to India um, they'd pick up coins and eventually they just be, get to be known as oh that's the person that knows a lot about coins. If you find coins, bring them to them. They'll buy them. Um, but a lot of our knowledge, again, is from them. They're the ones actually publishing more, not the academics. Yeah. So we have this field because that knowledge is in the public. And this is also why I have my social media stuff I have connected to showing that numismatics is quite cool. It is accessible you don't have to have a PhD to understand the basics. Yeah, yeah, because you mentioned your social media. What do you do on social media? So I've got um, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I use, I try and use them in various ways so that somebody who's following all of them will be getting slightly different stuff. So like the TikTok, I put fun little quizzes, 
like identify the coin, that sort of thing. Um, the YouTube, I do kind of longer videos explaining, say, today I'm going to talk about, say, this Central Asian coin. Here's what you should know about it. Here's my research about it. Uh, stuff like that. The Instagram is more just for showing pretty pictures of coins. There's a, there's a large subgroup within that platform that does that sort of thing. So it's just different different ways to show that like this is something that's very interesting and you don't have to be an expert to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, because it's very visible. It's very Well, A maybe... it's visible. I mean it's quite easy to take a picture of this and a nice picture no less. But also <coughs> I can fit this in my pocket. I can bring this anywhere quite easily and I'm not worried about it breaking. Yeah. Like say with ceramics or glass or something like that. Yeah, fun fact, it's probably designed to be taken well, places. Well, yeah, again, coins, they're intended to be able to throw them all in a bag and go on your caravan journey. Yeah, buy a horse. Yep. For example, that was a very random. No, I mean, you want to be able to go to the market and take your bag of coins and say, I want that camel, here's my silver. Yeah, yeah. B besides your work you mentioned a few things already but you were also in the army yep uh, how so i spent eight there? years uh, with the canadian reserves so we have a regular army and then a reserve army reserve is basically one night a week and then the occasional weekend and from like may june july august i'd usually be employed with them in some role um but it's quite open i mean if you have to leave you have to leave these sort of things so I joined that when I was 16 while I was still in high school and then continued on until I got accepted for my master's, which was going to be overseas in Qatar. So I had to leave because I had to physically leave the country. Uh, it seemed like a logical decision at the time. Do you see a lot of these army things back in the work you do today? I do because I got used to, well, you got to get up at 5 a.m. This is just how it works. Uh, hey, you're going to be here for the next 12 hours to do this job. All right, let's do it. Um, Anybody who's known me for like an extended period of time and knows the people that I've worked with, if they were to watch, say, the way I teach a tutorial, they'll see bits and pieces of, say, some of my old sergeants. Because I've actually taken little bits and pieces of their mannerisms and I've put that into how I teach. Uh, there's no screaming in my tutorials, don't worry. But Not yet. little mannerisms, the way they talk, the way they explain things, um, has now gone into the way I teach. Yeah. How would you describe that way of teaching? Because it's been something you've done for a long time. You spent time in China. Now you're teaching here as well. Oh. So teaching is something that's very much an experimental science. And something I tell new TAs and new teachers is, you will never be a teacher like me because you are not me, right? We look different. We sound different. We act different. We have different mannerisms. We have different personalities. We have different histories. That is going to completely affect the way you teach. So you need to find what works best for you. So for example, teaching in China, because I was dealing with you know three and four year olds that were absolutely terrified of me, I had to learn to be very goofy. Because then they'd suddenly realize, oh, this big, massive, hulking guy with a beard actually is not scary. That took them time, but I adapted that into my lesson. Um, it allowed me to stay quite grounded and make it clear that I do not know all the answers. I know some of them but not all of them. And I do try and incorporate that into how I teach is I make it clear that you're not going to be able to just absorb this knowledge and congrats, you're now done learning. This is a, a long journey. 
and even I mean I have tutorials like I've got three of them today after we finish uh, recording this and wow. I, I, I accept that not all three are going to go the exact same way the first one might go really well and then I do that exact same thing in the second one and it doesn't go well that's the nature of the job and once you embrace that and you learn that it becomes much easier yeah even though I can imagine that the people that are here at the faculty are a little bit more keen to learn than the three, four-year-old Chinese people. I would think so. I would think so. Uh, I would hope so because yeah. they're here at the university. <laughs> right? um, but also, I mean, just like with every teacher is different, every student is different. Uh, you and I do not learn the same way because, again, we are different. Uh, you can have a class of 120 students and you basically have 120 different learning styles. And that's quite normal because you also have to accept that maybe at the end of the tutorial you are going to love this topic and you want to do it for your master's degree and you think it's the greatest thing ever. Not everyone will and that's fine. Some people are just going to pick up a couple things and again, that's fine. Do you have a big dream research where you're like one day I hope to research. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily a topic per se, and I'm going to get yelled at by my mom for this later, guaranteed after she listens to this. Uh, um, but I'd love to not have to worry about borders. I'd love to be able to go into like an Afghanistan or a Syria or a Yemen or like a North Korea and just access the data there and access the information without having to worry about kind of political consequences or issues with visas and whatnot. That to me would just be amazing. Um, even, I mean, on Sunday, I'm off to Uzbekistan for six weeks and I'm so glad that I get a chance to go to these places that most people would struggle to find on a map. Um, I mean, again, the reason why my parents have a map is because of all my travels and them having to find places. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd wish I could just access some of these places that I can't access right now. Yeah, I can imagine. Even though it's quite common in, in countries like Afghanistan or Syria to destroy archaeology, isn't it? I wouldn't call it common. I think that's a little bit of a... We get too oh, much sorry. of that in the media. But there is so much in these places that's uh, undiscovered. I think I heard a stat recently that we've only excavated maybe 15% of Iraq. Like 15%. And we've been excavating... Or people have been excavating there for... 200 years give or take yeah 15 percent. that is shockingly small so i remember as well when things were first kicking off with isis uh there was one of the sites that they destroyed but underneath the layer that they destroyed there was like an older layer that we didn't even realize was there and it's just like even if some stuff does get destroyed it's such a small part of the bigger picture that we just hope that eventually we can get some of that data. Yeah, yeah. Because for example, Professor Ackermann from our faculty, his his whole depot was destroyed from Tel Sabiabiat and mm. things like this. Oof. Yeah, yeah. It's rough. It, I cannot. Yeah, I can't even imagine how rough yeah. that is. But yeah. Yeah, but even I mean, happens. so my site of Otrar has been excavated since the early twenties. Uh, there's sites like Merv in Turkmenistan that have been excavated for over a hundred years and you could probably excavate for another hundred. We will never truly be able to get all of it. So we just got to kind of focus on what we can get and yeah. what we can learn. Is that a thing that bothers you? 
Not really, because that's one of those just I've accepted that I will never be able to learn it all. I mean, even if you look within my, my subfield of coins, I am an archaeologist first, a numismatist second, an expert in the Middle East and Central Asia third. I know shockingly little about, say, Northwest Europe or uh, India, because that's a subfield unto itself that I could spend the next 50 years, but I'd still be missing everywhere else in the world. And that's, it's just the nature of it. I mean, it's no different, say, a doctor is not going to know every single little thing about medicine. They'll have, they'll, they'll have a pretty decent knowledge, but they'll still be missing some stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, one of my big hobbies is bonsai trees. Nice. It sounds very nerdy, but I really like it. Um, and, and it's exactly the same with that. You know that when you start to grow a tree, tree you'll never see it finished and that's one of the beauties of it and yeah i i see that way in archaeology as well like we kind of know what happened for example during the bronze age in the netherlands yeah. but you never know you never know yeah you know because yeah, i also that's accept it. that like i could publish something today and then five years from now one of my students publishes well actually i don't agree with professor willette and then five years after that, somebody else comes up and says, well, actually, I agree with this person, but I don't agree with, with this person. My, here's my view. And then 20 years after that, somebody else. Put, and then 50 years after that, somebody else. And I'm long dead at that point. In 50 years? Nah. You nah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I, I get the idea. Yeah. 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 That's true. I mean, because even if you look, say, our technology that we have now, they did not have 50, 60 years ago. Even... If you look at some of the advancements that have been made since I started my BA in 2008, uh, it's been a while. Um, we know so much more about mapping and uh, GIS and, you know, these things that they didn't have access to 20, 30 years ago. That means you could have published something in 1990 that has been completely disproved by now. When I do searches for stuff um, for my thesis or just for research in general, one of the first things I do is I adjust the published from and I go 2000 onwards. Okay. Just to see if there is at least recent research. Yeah. Yeah. Because I also have a weird problem where because I deal with Central Asian archaeology, you get a lot of uh, Soviet and earlier archaeologists. So it's like the last time anything was reported on this was 1922. Whew, this is going to be a long go. <laughs> That's really funny, actually, that that you would say Asia is a big part of the world, arguably one of the biggest chunks of the world yeah. you can actually find. And it's so little excavated. That's really... Yeah, I mean, again, I, we'll never be able to, even, even within China, they will never be able to excavate all of it. No. Even amongst the Chinese archaeologists, they will never be able to excavate all of it because there's just so much. Um so now combine that also with places like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, uh, Mongolia. I mean, the, the Russian Siberian steppe, like these massive areas that, you know, are the si basically the size of Europe within one country. You could never excavate all of it. No, no. And especially also the fastness of these places. Like there's yeah. nothing for... Oh, I've I've been on drives in Kazakhstan, and it's five hours, and you do not see a single thing except for the occasional bump along the the step, which you suspect is a tome or some sort of uh, burial mound. Even again from Canada, you can drive a solid ten hours and see literally nothing. 
especially if you're in the west of the country, like 10 hours and there is nothing. It is just flat and there's grass and that is it. Do you think it's a perk to have a small country where you can just travel anywhere or do you like the vastness and openness of I, th of, I think example, it's actually Canada? a cultural thing. So for example, if I, if I ask my, my Dutch friends, hey, let's go to Rotterdam for the day. They're like, oh, it's such a long trip. Because they've grown up with that, though, of Rotterdam being, you know, an hour and a half, an hour away. But, I mean, for me growing up in Canada, you knew Toronto was a five-hour drive. But you just accepted that. Like, you, you knew, or you knew, hey, we're going to go see the family. It's going to be a three-hour drive to get to this small village in the middle of Quebec. You, you just accepted that because you grew up with it. Yeah. Yeah, so a 30-minute cycle ride for you is... Yeah, it's ba that it, yeah, that's that's quite. I mean, it's rough on the knees, but you know, um, <laughs> but no, that's that's quite short for me. Well, yeah, for me, that's well, cycling is one of the things I do, and running as well. But I, thirty minutes for most of my friends, very far, very long. That's a long oh, time yeah. to to do something. <laughs> it's funny, unless it's playing video games, then thirty minutes is a very short time. Oh yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's not even considered playing video no, games if it's under yeah, 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so you're teaching the first years now. Yes. You're probably going to be teaching the first years next year. Yep, that's been confirmed as of last week. <laughs> oh, cool. Do you have any pro tips for them? So start learning another language. Um, that's a long-term thing, but, I mean, you can never go wrong with learning another language because, uh, I mean, most of the students will have English presumably Dutch as well, if not both, a third one's going to help you in the long run. Uh, so learn a language. Uh, I would say read as much as you can. Um, anybody who's seen my office knows the amount of books that I have in there and at home and back home in Canada. And it, it's bad some days, I have to admit. Uh, but some of the best ideas I've had have just been from like walking in a library, picking up a book and going, huh, this is a topic that I've never read about. I'm interested in this now. Maybe this is related to my thesis. Maybe it's not. That's okay. Um, but just grab as much knowledge as you can from kind of those little side things. And the other thing, and I know this is kind of academic heresy, so I'll probably get yelled at for this later, but don't worry about grades. So I barely made it through high school. Like they, they weren't even sure if I'd be able to make it to university because my grades weren't that great. Um, universe, like my BA, my grades were pretty average. They weren't, you know, horrible, although I had a couple courses I had to redo. Um, you know, my master's, though, was when it started to get good grades. Why? But at the end of the day, it's just a number. It does not reflect you as a researcher or you as a person. Um, don't overthink it. Because I think too many students, they go in and go, oh my god, I have to get an 80. If I don't get an 80, I'm a failure at life. No. Uh, if you look at my MA class, there was six of us. We were all over the board for grades, and we've all done relatively well given how things uh, turned out. Some have gone on to PhDs like myself. Some have gone into the private sector, and they're doing quite well. Um, and, you know, we all had various grades. It wasn't just the people who had 80s who did well. So if you have, you know, if you have to redo a course, you have to redo a course. It happens to the best of us. Uh, if you get a six, it's okay. 
life will move on. I wish somebody like back in that first year of BA would have gone to me and said, hey, you're going to have a few courses that aren't going to go well. That's okay. At the end of the episode, we always allow the guests to promote something, their own work, something else. Would you like to promote anything? Um, so I've got a couple publications coming out within the Oriental Numismatic Society over the next couple months, I think. Um, so, you know, you check out the Oriental Numismatic Society. Uh, if not, a lot of really good research coming out of there. Uh, you can check out my YouTube channel and TikTok and Instagram just for kind of more about what I do. I'm off to Uzbekistan for six weeks on Sunday, so I'll be posting a lot from there. Kind of cool Uzbek and Central Asian archaeology. Should be a good go, so I'm quite excited for that. And, uh, you know, feel free to email me if you have questions or just you want to know more about how does this whole system work because that is one of the uh, another big challenges for first-year university students or just university students is understanding how this whole academic system works. I mean, I'm still figuring it out, and I've been at this since, I think, 2008, I said I started my BA. So it's been a while, and I'm still figuring things out. Under what handle can people find you? For TikTok, I, I go under the coin guy uh, 613 and I think Instagram, it's very similar as well. It's CoinGuy23. I have to keep changing the numbers because people keep stealing them. Yeah. And uh, YouTube is just the coin guy. The coin guy. Uh, the, the YouTube link is a little... We, we said it before and I'll say it again. Is this an actual one or just a drill? It says we have to leave now. All right. Um, with that, thank you very much for listening. We'll run out of the building now, but thank you very much for being here. <laughs> it was lovely. Thank you, Jonathan, for, for being here. Yeah. Not a problem. And good luck in Uzbekistan. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks.